0: راما
1: 233 ماركيشين كايت ماريل شيدو يشير من مخنار مابا بيركشيرز كل 102.3 Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Parsha Talk, the best Torah talk in Dutchess County, New York. I am your host, Rabbi Barry Chesler of the Schachter School of Long Island, and in the studio with me today is Rabbi Jeremy Kamenowski of Anshei Chesed, one of the boys, a longtime veteran of Parsha Talk, and Rabbi Joel Levinson of the Midway Jewish Center, back for his second year for a stint on the show. It's but,
2: great, great to come back to my. To my old show from the from one of the founding trio, and we miss our buddy with the deep voice. I hope well, I hope you're listening.
1: We wanted to give Rabbi Elliot Malamud of the Highland Park Conservative Temple a shout out, as well as Nate Bargat, a longtime romanic who's celebrating his birthday this week. Yo, who let it may, Nate? And who wanted as a birthday gift a partial talk from the boys. So we have two thirds of the boys here, and Joel is more than a willing and capable fill-in.
0: Absolutely, and we're sending this to you, Nate, and to everybody out there.
1: So we begin with Parshat Chukat, one of the great parshiot, which of course is our lead-in every week. We're not all that original in that regard, but we have a lot of different things going on. We have, at the beginning, the episode or the description of the Parah Duma, the famous red heifer, although David Marcus, whom I had at the Jewish Theological Seminary, suggested that it was really a brown heifer. And it was totally brown because Biblical Hebrew did not have a word for red. It was something of a mistranslation. But it presents a fascinating ritual. We have people that come into contact with a corpse who then must be purified by having the ashes of this corpse sprinkled on them. Any comments?
0: About what? About the red?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, this is as, as many of our listeners probably know uh, this is regarded as a uniquely mysterious rite uh, oh, al- chok. a chok the, the chok there's, there's a, there's a tradition of distinguishing between mishpatim, the rationally plausible mitzvot, and the chukim which just appear to emerge out of the divine intelligence that, that are beyond human intelligence and there's a great verse from Koelta, Amarti ech mimeni. I Solomon says, I will be wise yet this was far off from me, and this is the example of, of a ritual in which those who are impurified become, those who are, who are defiled become pure, and those who touch the ashes, the pure people who touch the ashes become impurified. I would say that the way to think about tum'ah and, and impurity in the Bible is not, in the main, clean and dirty, um, because all kinds of things about our bodies that are good, like childbirth, um, induce impurities doesn't mean they're bad it means that they're not ordinary and when things are at a nexus point the crossing of the boundaries between life and death um, between order and disorder we call those things tame. and we have to help the people who've experienced um, the, the, this kind of electric moment we have to get them reordered and so when somebody has touched or been in close contact with a dead human body—that is the most intense and electric and terrifying, not bad because it's real, but terrifying experience. And so they feel that they're not in normal life. All of the all of the pieces of their life are jumbled up. They're not. Their eyes aren't dotted, and their T's aren't crossed. And the ritual is supposed to uh, help people re-enter a life of. Order, as opposed to this terrifying disorder of touching a human body. I'm going to guess that most of our listeners, and me until I became a synagogue rabbi, uh, was very unaccustomed to seeing a dead body. By being a shul rabbi and having lots of funerals, uh, it's much more common for me to come in closer contact with a dead body. It's scary. It's haunting. And you need something to help you take a step back from the edge of the cliff of death and back into light that you can handle.
0: Jeremy, I'm noticing this t-shirt you're wearing here in the studio today. It says at the top, show a little faith. Uh, you've got a guitar there and beneath that guitar it says there's magic in the night. Uh, it was the the ratio the first part of your t-shirt that caught my eye as related to our discussion here of the para aduma, uh, show a little faith because what can challenge one's faith more than a loss and then and, and death uh and yet perhaps this uh this episode comes to remind us that there are ways to stay connected and get, rejoin the community even after loss uh.
1: so we have a curious ritual um it's a ritual where the shakning the killing of the animal and the burning of the body takes place out of the camp not in the camp, all the people that participate in the preparation for the ashes of the red heifer become themselves impure until evening, sometimes requiring the washing of the clothes. So there is this complete separation. We've both encountered loss, whether personally and professionally or professionally. And the question that's raised by our Jewish calendar is whether there is room for a ritual like this or something that we can extrapolate today for meaning for our congregants and campers. I am struck, as we all well know, that this reading is always read in the conservative synagogue because it's the Maftir for Parshat Parah before Passover, so even those who might miss it on the triennial cycle will read it in the weeks before Pesach. Is there some kind of meaning in the ritual itself that we might find today?
0: Well, I'm, I'm struck by the idea that this, this para aduma that is to be brought is a para aduma ma, that it's meant to be a perfect para aduma, whatever color of a para that, that is, uh, and that it's, it's perfect, it's without blemish. Uh, and as, as if to suggest that, when it comes to this particular topic, that there's no one without blemish, uh, and that life doesn't promise a life without blemish. Uh, that if we, if we expect that, that life will always be perfect, that we'll never experience any pain of any kind, that's a fantasy. Uh, and the reality is that this is something that is part of the human condition. Uh, not that we can avoid it, but how we respond to it that makes all the difference.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's uh, beautiful. Um, I, I personally think, by the way, and, and it's, it is true, um, that that ancient languages had um, fewer distinct words for color, and so the brown and the red, um, you know, you'll sometimes see what is described as um, uh, uh, Yarok. Rashi at one point described something as Yarok, which is clearly means yellow. Uh, so, I, th- I think... He was colorblind. He was colorblind. Uh, so, I, th- I think it's, it's perfectly plausible that it's a brown cap. On the other hand, um, to me, para aduma connotes blood. Um, it is a ritual of blood and fire, and, and of course, this brings to mind to anybody Game of Thrones. No, I'm kidding, but... but, but uh, the interesting <laughs> thing, if
1: I might interject, is that dry
2: blood is brown. Dry blood, dry blood is brown. Um, so uh, I, I do think that this is a ritual. That asks the participants to get into life in its uh, blood and fire, its, it's dirtiness, its ashes, um, and those mingled with Mayim Chaim El Keli put in a vessel with fresh flowing water. And that's life a mingling of, of, of injury, of burning, of loss, of blood, with also the resurrecting power of water. I would say, by the way, that the whole system of Tuman Tahara of order and disorder, and the, and the desire to place things in order, the, um, the ways in which priests are described as having to have no physical blemishes and not having to have injuries or being lame or this or that, or the other thing, the animals all having to be pure. I think in the Bible, they really uh, prefer, and in, in a world which is probably very sick, lots of injuries, lots of birth defects, lots of things which we are not accustomed to, to make the Beit HaMikdash, or the, the Mishkan, to be pure and clean and perfect was probably very appealing in a way which in our world, just as as Joel just said, that ain't real. That's a little bit of a fantasy. And to me, the countertext fra, from the, the Torah and Leviticus and, and much of Numbers with the desire to have a very clean and orderly sacred space is uh, from... Uh, the uh, poet Leonard Cohen, um, who said, forget your perfect offering, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. It's the crack that enables a kind of illumination, not the perfection, it's the imperfection that, that is real human excellence.
0: And it's related to a, a, another item in this parsha of a leader with, uh, with, I might say, a crack, and that's Moshe Rabbeinu, right? It's in this parsha where he and Aaron, what do they do? They hit the rock, right, Barry?
1: Yes, they hit the rock and they speak before the people. Um, this is a nice segue. The very next episode in the Torah is the famous story of Moses and the rock. We have a parallel story in chapter 17 of Sefer Shmot, the book of Exodus. It is for this reason that Moses is not going to get into the land of Israel. Aaron, who meets with the same punishment, Nebuch will die later this Parsha. Moshe has to slog it out for another few Parshaot in Bamidbar in the whole book of Devarim before he finally is rebuffed for the last time by God. On the banks of the Jordan, uh, the east banks of the Jordan River. But what are we to make of this story where Moses does one thing, something that he's done before, however we understand his sin? And Joel, as you mentioned, there are almost as many different explanations as there are commentators. And for those of us who uh, had the privilege of hearing um, Jason's Devar Torah uh, before one of our meetings earlier this week, there are still more that I've never even heard on, this one in particular playing on the word morim, which in context means rebels, but can also mean teachers. And there are these two wonderful midrashim suggesting some pedagogical ways of going about things to help us, which is always on our minds at camp. But what do we make, first of all, of Moses? How, how does he respond here? and? Is he punished appropriately?
0: I feel bad for Moses. Uh, he's worked really hard. He's been he's slugged it out. He's he's seen the people go from uh, from leaving Egypt from uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim and getting to this point. This particular narrative, at least according to some of the commentaries, tells us that this is happening at the start of the 40th year after having left Egypt. And so they've been through a lot. The, the Torah kind of almost like gives us a quick, short, brief transition from the argumentation that we read about last week of Korach uh, and the rebellion of Korach to to this particular point in the Torah's narrative. And you might say he's made it this far. Uh, he's worked so hard. Uh, let him uh, enter Eretz Israel and not uh, not have to endure the punishment uh, which. As we noted, there are lots of different explanations for it, uh, you know, whether it's just that he didn't use his words properly. Here we are, mm-hmm. telling his chanechim to use their words and not to use their hands improperly. Uh, whether he got a little bit too angry. Uh, uh, but I, I, I feel bad for him. I think it's just a, another reminder that people, and related to what we talked about earlier, people are not perfect. Moshe Rabbeinu is not perfect, and we feel put are religious leaders or political leaders? Anyone up on too high of a pedestal, we're bound to be. We're we're bound to be disappointed.
2: I, I want to um, return to what you said a minute ago, Joel, about the the brokenness of people. Um, I I think that the one of the best things about the Torah is that Moshe never enters the Promised Land. I think the Torah is a story of constant journeying, never arriving. By the way, to our to our mishlachat and our friends in, in uh, uh, our Israeli listeners I think one of the things one of the many things that divides uh, the so to speak two great Jewish communities of Eretz Israel and and Babel, the modern Babel that is the United States is that um, in, in Israel Ameri- in Israel Jewish life you know you have a sense of having arrived at a destined land and we in America, Uh, have a sense of gola, of of exile still, that has been reduced in Israeli life. And I think it is awesome that in Judaism, in the Torah that we read, the leaders through the journey never get to arrive. And so Moshe Rabbeinu, at, at uh, at one level, as you read the parashat Chukat, it's hard to correlate what happens to Moses with the single action of hitting the rock. Okay,
1: so do you think then it's cumulative that along the way he has done things and finally the critical mass is this partial where he hits the rock?
2: I, I, I think something different, but, but even what, whatever it is, whether it is that God is extremely demanding of this particular leader given his excellence. You know, I, I can cut you a break if you're the if you're the shoemaker's assistant, but if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, I have very high standards. Maybe it's that. Um, Maybe it's the, the fact that he yells, Shimu nah ha-morim, listen up, you rotten rebels. Uh, although let's note that the prophets and Moshe all through the rest of Deuteronomy do nothing but yell at the people for their rottenness. So it's it's hard to see it's that. Um, uh, I personally think that the, the Torah is being sneaky and saying that Moses is hitting the rock as a great punishment is really a backhanded, slight reference or allusion to Moses destroying the the tablets at the episode of the Golden Calf. I think that Aaron's bad punishment here when he's really just a total bystander in the story, there's no obvious reason here in Parshat Fukat why Aaron gets punished. I think that too is about the Golden Calf episode. And so I think that those two things are big sins which warrant the punishment. But even if it's not those big sins, even if it's the small sins of... of of disobeying this precise order or yelling at the people or losing his temper or whatever, even if it's the small sins or it's accumulative sins, what's a spiritual reality is that you never arrive. And and when we say that Moshe and Aaron, despite all their greatness, never get to arrive, to me that's a spiritual paradigm for the fact that all of our journeys are never about arriving. They're always about the journey.
1: So life itself, as we know and often speak about, is a great journey. And in fact, I would say that the greatness of the Torah is precisely in that image at the end of Moshe alone on the mountaintop looking into the promised land. We ourselves in our individual lives do not know what's going to come next. And at best, we get a glimpse of the promised land. And we hope that there will be something there for us for comfort or perhaps for sustenance. But I want to turn back for a moment to something you said, Jeremy, about Moses breaking the tablets. If that, in fact, is the great sin, what precisely is the sin? The way the story is couched in Exodus, it seems like it's precisely the right thing to do. He's in the midst of a rebellion. He has to get people's attention, and therefore he breaks the most precious thing that he has, which are God's tablets. So, I, I think
2: that the um, way of reading uh, an action and saying, well, do we put thumbs up or thumbs down, sometimes, a, um, escape, you know, misses some of the subtleties. So, I would say that the difference between a crime and a tragedy is that a crime never should have happened, and a tragedy is painful and sad and heartbreaking and maybe inevitable. So I would say that the that the uh, breaking of the tablets was more like a tragedy. It's not like he may necessarily had any alternatives because the people had done something like unspeakably bad. And exactly as you said, the moment when God gave him the first tablets, the world was perfect. It was working. Mm-hmm. The Torah was whole. But the people destroyed it. You know, there's this great Midrash. Mm-hmm. Moses was 80 years old. He's carrying down these two massive tablets. How do you ever have the strength? The, the Midrash has that the letters were filled with spirituality. And when the people worshipped the golden calf, all the spirituality vanished. And they just became heavy stone. It's not that he destroyed them. It's that he just dropped them because they just became so heavy. Like, that's a tragedy. And, and so the punishment is not necessarily, Moshe, what were you thinking? You should have done something else it's that, it's that the, the experience was from perfection to painful imperfection. By the way, there's an awesome little midrash. Also, when Moses gets told for the second time, mm-hmm. I want you to hew out two new tablets and carry them up the mountain, and I'll write them back to the Ten Commandments again. There's a, a little midrash that says, I want you to hew these ones out. I gave you the last ones and you didn't take very good care of them. If you have to work, <laughs> to hew out these next ones you might take a little bit better care of them so that's a midrash that sort of fits fits what i'm saying about about moses's failing
0: well it certainly speaks to something we're trying to do here at, at camp Ramah, which is to inspire our chanechim and the said that to take a level of personal responsibility for their particular makom, the particular space uh, and, and the world. That's one of the, one of the themes that we're addressing with uh, some of our older hadichim, is that of achrayut, of, of responsibility, and the mind of leadership, uh, and for them to understand that uh, they have to be, they can be personally invested, uh, and through their investment with whatever the issues of the day are, that they can uh, perhaps uh, make a difference.
2: Can I, can I say a, a Hasidic drash, and I forget exactly who this was, I'm going to say Noam Ali Melech of Lijensk, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, He's got a great line about leadership, as Joel was just saying about leadership, that God says to Moshe, Speak to the rock and it'll give forth its water. And Moses instead whacks the rock over the head and he gives forth its water. And the Drash goes, You can sometimes beat people into doing what you want them to do but it's not them at their best and it's not you at your best speaking to even when speaking to a rock which doesn't seem like a very promising (laughs) doesn't seem like a very promising possibility don't try to beat it out of them Uh, try to persuade them why it's good and i think you know if you can if you're if you're listening here guys uh with your hanichim. With the kids in your classes, with the people that you work, that you will work with in your life, you know you can yell at people and force them to conform and force them to do what you want. But it's not really you at your best or them at their best. We're we're working for something better. And at the end of the parsha, to me, this is a home run in the parsha. At the end of the parsha, there's a this little fragment, this little poetic fragment. Uh, uh, that Moses comes, after Miriam dies, and we may have a word about that, after Miriam dies, the, the miraculous well that, that was with the people, that's, that's why we have the rock at the water episode. There's no more Miriam's well. The people are dying of thirst. Uh, later, they, they come to a well, and they sing this little fragment, Ali Be'er Enula, up well of water, sing to it. We go from whacking the rock to singing to the rock. And to me, that is just a great advance. We learn we how to not beat it into submission, but uh, to make it sing beautiful music.
0: You know, I, we acknowledge that there's a little bit of a debate about whether this episode of Moses and the Rock uh, is a repeat or a second telling yeah. of this particular incident. Uh, but maybe, maybe, in either case, there's something else that strikes me that kind of speaks to this idea of singing to the rock. That is to say that... Uh, up until now, as we've noted, the has focused on, on the Torah's been focusing on um, after everything up until this 40th year. And as I said a minute ago, uh, the Torah does a quick turn from those first years out in the Midbar, B- B- where there's lots of argument and fighting, and almost fast-forwarding to this point, where they're starting the 40th year and approaching, entering Eretz Israel.
1: So perhaps, at least for this year, we could... Think of the tale of Moses and the rock as a cautionary tale that too often we are focusing on results. And we think that whatever path gets us the results must have been good because we got what we want. So as you noted, Jeremy, at the end when Moses hits the rock, the people get the water that they need. And we might think all is well and good, whereas the process was completely wrong. And the results almost do not matter. And that might be a lesson for leadership all over the world today. If we could move along um, but to the story of the copper snake. So in this passage, so as Jeremy mentioned, the precipitating event for Moses in the rock is the death of Miriam, who gets a footnote, as it were. The Torah notes that she died and she's buried. And then the people do not have water. And then, moving along another chapter or so, we now have the people complaining that they have neither bread nor water, and in fact, whatever food they have is important to them. And God, for some reason, still a mystery to me, is not pleased. <laughs> and he sends snakes forth, which attack the people, and the people now pray, come to Moses and pray to him for some kind of relief. And the relief is a little bit unexpected, I would think. It's not that the snakes disappear, but that a copper snake will be made and will be erected. And whenever the problem of snakes comes again, all who will look at the copper snake will be healed. And all who do not,
0: will not. With regards to the copper, is this just a play on words? It's a copper snake. It's, it's often translated as a copper right. snake. Right,
1: so one of the commentaries I think is Jacob Milgram suggests is actually bronze. Um, and that would lend itself to the play. Explain.
0: He does explain that, right, in Hebrew a snake is a nechash, right, and copper nechoshet. So
1: right, and also nechosh, there's an element of magic involved yes, as yes. well. Yes, very good.
0: Just like Jeremy Shirt. There's magic in the night. We get Springsteen in every episode. So what do we make of this copper snake? And and maybe of what the the uh, the prescription here to end this particular well, It's kind of
1: curious. In the past the people have sinned, but they don't do anything to remind them of their sin. Um, there is last week's Parsha, they take the fire pans and they make it into something that's the that, uh, a door in the altar, but here the sin itself has to be recalled.
0: So this is a, a mirroring of their their sin to constantly remind them of what they did to lead to this particular.
1: And not only that, in the biblical historiography, this snake is going to be destroyed later by King Hezekiah, right. who's one of the great kings in the Davidic dynasty, um, with mention that it has stood here since the days of Moshe. And it's striking to me, at least, when we read the story in Kings, it obviously makes sense that this copper snake is somewhere in the temple or in front of the temple. But the story that we're left with in Safe Obitment Bar is that they have to schluck it with them. Yeah, I I would say, by the way, that,
2: uh, you know, um, I haven't haven't gone to check that this is exactly right, but uh, I think that in general... The complaining of the people about, you know, bad food and bad water and nah, na 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 all is not always the thing which triggers God's rage. It's tanu Why did we leave Egypt? That's the thing that is guaranteed to make God mad. Because I have set you on this difficult spiritual path out of slavery towards freedom, towards the promised land, and you just like the watermelon. Okay? Right. You just you just want the food. And that is guaranteed. And so that's a faithlessness. Um, so as Joel likes my Springsteen T-shirt. Show a little faith, and then you'll find the magic in the night. Um, and and if you um, the people have no faith about leaving Egypt towards the Promised Land, and so this little copper snake, which is clearly a magic thing, and you you get why Chizkiyahu is an anti-idolatry guy, why he ultimately wants to get rid of the snake, um, but
1: uh, it is it, I think. To the extent that it works, it connotes, keep the faith, guys, keep the faith. So, it's important to also recognize that in the 40th year, most of B'nai Yisrael has not been in Egypt. So, it's very different when the generation that left Egypt says we should should go back to Egypt from when the generation that was never in Egypt says we should go back to Egypt. That seems to be a complete betrayal of God that would arouse anyone's wrath, not just the qadosh So there's an interesting Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah, which compares this snake with the story in Amalek right before the story of Moses and the rock in Exodus about um, Moses having to have his hands propped up by Aharon and Hor, his nephew, their nephew, um, in order to for Joshua to win the battle against Amalek. And the way that the Mishnah reads, at least in the English, um, could the hands of Moses make war lose a war? It is rather to teach you, as long as Israel was looking upwards and subjecting their hearts to their Father in heaven, they prevailed, and if not, they fell. And similarly about the Copper Serpent, but rather when Israel looked upwards and subjected their hearts to their Father in heaven, they were healed, and if not, they perished. What do you make of that? Do we really think that merely concentrating on our belief in God is salvational in any meaningful sense?
2: Not in this religion.
0: <laughs> so we we uh, are not focused solely on our beliefs. We also put a lot of emphasis on our actions uh, as well, uh, and that the deeds that we do can make all the difference so, if we could just conclude,
1: then, with the conclusion of this particular Mishnah from Rosh Hashanah, Peret, Mishnah Chet. A deaf, mute, an imbecile in the minor cannot fulfill an obligation on behalf of the many. This is a general rule. Whoever is not liable to an obligation cannot fulfill that obligation on behalf of the many. And it would seem that it's emphasizing the need for an intellectual discipline in our approach to religion, that people who don't think things through will think it's Moses' hands being held up or the copper snake, and they're like the deaf, mute, the imbecile, and the minor, people who, do not, who lack intelligence in our tradition, and what we need and what we hope to impart every day in Yahadut and through our modeling at camp is the need for an intelligent Judaism today. With that, on behalf of Rabbi Joel Levinson and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanoski, We'd like to wish each and every one of you Shabbat Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
0: Shalos F